I'm Bob Lapine from Truth For Life. I know many of you are familiar with the annual basics conference that is hosted by Parkside Church every spring. In fact, some of you have been able to be with us for basics. In 2023, our featured speakers were Herschel York, Colin Smith, and of course, Alistair Begg. And as part of the conference, I had the opportunity to sit down with all three men and talk about some of the themes from the conference, but also how God is at work in our world today. Well, I know that some who are listening to this have been with us at the Basics Conference, although there'll be many who haven't been able to be at Basics. And so let me just briefly introduce Herschel York, who's with us, who is the chair of the or the, the dean of the School of Theology at the Southern the Southern Baptist the Theological Seminary, Seminary, Louisville, Kentucky, and is also the pastor at Buck Run Church in Lexington. Frankfurt. Frankfurt, Kentucky. We also have Colin Smith joining us, who is the pastor of the multi-site church, The Orchard in suburban Chicago, and a fellow Scotsman, right? Indeed. So where were you born? In Edinburgh, Scotland. All right. So you were born... Is that the north? Is Edinburgh the north? Well, we're about equal with Glasgow, I think, uh, 40 miles apart at the same uh, latitude. Is there rivalry between oh, of course. the sky? <laughs> 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 of course, Alistair Begg is here. You were born? Glasgow. Glasgow. So the rivalry is established, right? Yeah, it's surprising <laughs> that, you know, we're only 45 miles apart from one another, and yet we can we find things to fight about. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start... Reading something, Alistair, you said in your message on Jude uh, here at Basics, and and I want the two of you to comment on this. I, I wrote it. I went back and double-checked this. Evangelicalism in the West is probably more non-theological than it has ever been in the entire history of the church. Herschel, is that hyperbole or at the risk of offending the host, who I know you have no problem offending, we've seen that over and over again, <laughs> basics. Is that accurate? Uh, yes and no. How about that for an answer? I, I think there's certainly truth that the the breadth of evangelicalism, I think uh, that would be true of. It is less theological. I think within evangelicalism, there is uh, sort of a deeper center. I, I think you're seeing a, a really a great interest in theology among uh, a, a segment of evangelicalism, but I think the broad contours of it that's that's definitely true that uh, there there is a flight from uh, a, a strict adherence to evangelical theology. So, if you think about evangelicalism broadly, that remnant, that center you're talking yeah. about. Would you put a number to that? Is that twenty percent? Is that well? I, the truth is, I really don't know. Uh, but I, I'll say this: I'm encouraged by uh, so many young people I see just having a great interest in theology. I think it, in some ways, it's greater than when I was young. I'm seeing more young people who they like they they arrive at Southern Seminary already with a really developed theology. They've been reading and thinking about these things. I think uh, I, I see that more certainly now than when I was 20 years old. Uh, and so I'm encouraged by that. 
Colin, you were nodding your head when he said he was encouraged. Do you share some of that? Yeah, I think that for um, every movement, you have reactions. And uh, as evangelicalism has become less and less theological, the reaction to that is that you have a generation of younger people who, uh, in many cases, have a, a significant interest in finding something that's more substantial than uh, the diluted form of faith mm. that they've experienced. And uh, uh, so the, the, there's never just one factor. Um, and uh, I, I think, Kershaw, that's exactly right. So. I'm hearing both of you say you're encouraged. Is that a little bit of encouragement among a sea of discouragement? Or would you say there's more encouragement? And I'm not trying to put numbers to all of this, but in general, what's your sense? Yeah, well, it really is both. I'm discouraged to see so many in evangelicalism abandoning commitment to just what I would consider clear biblical principles, ob- the most obvious thing, sexuality, gender, mm. those things. Uh, it's disheartening to see churches and denominations uh, departing from the truth on that. But by the same token, I think you use the word remnant. I think that's a proper word to use. And there is a deeper commitment. There is, a, a, I think, a generation that's coming up that is willing to pay the price and to stand outside the mainstream of their culture and and preach the gospel. Yeah. Well, it depends where you look. And uh, we, we, we need encouragement. So it's good to look at where there is encouragement, especially when we feel discouraged. And uh, there's plenty reason to feel discouraged. But uh, uh, yeah, Herschel, I'm grateful for, uh, for what you're saying. Uh, look in the direction uh, of where there is a hunger and there is reason to be encouraged. Alistair, I've often said that it seems to me that the average layman in the time of the Puritans knew more theology than the average pastor in America does today. Yeah, that sounds salutary, doesn't it? But I mean, that would be Sinclair's expression. You know, Sinclair would say that in his experience with uh, seminary students, that the average, and this runs somewhat counter to what you're saying, that the average person shows up there with less of a grasp of biblical knowledge than was held by the average 13-year-old boy in Scotland at the turn of the century. That the framework out of which they're coming is very, very different from that which has been schooled in the things of Christ, the memorization of Scripture and everything else, their ability to actually pinpoint where certain things happen in the Bible is uh, a lot less than it than it's ever been, but um, yeah, I, I I'm I'm not discouraged. I think in some ways it was hyperbole on my part to, to, in order to make the point. Uh, you wouldn't have written it down if it was whole hum. <laughs> and in some ways, I think what I was saying was what Packer was saying years ago when they asked him about uh, evangelicalism in America. He said it's three thousand miles wide and six inches deep. And uh, I don't think he was trying to be unkind. I think that, again, was his observation of things. And that is, of course, before the great resurgence of, uh, you know, uh, the the arrival of Puritan literature, the the interest in uh, the things of God amongst young people, as uh, both my friends are saying. But I, I'm, I, uh, the, jur- the jury's out for me on whether the most recent wave of interest in Reformed theology amongst guys under the age of 40 is a sustainable situation. Hmm. 
as uh, you made the comment this morning that um, the authority of emotionalism has triumphed the authority of Scripture, and that does seem to be generally true. Emotionalism is the supreme authority in the culture today, but we're seeing that drift into the church. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's almost inevitable, isn't it? That uh, I mean, the the questions about um, someone was asking the other day about abusive pastors, and you realize that. I mean, if you'd say to somebody, um, "Would you please uh, pick that up?" They say, "Excuse me, uh, nobody asked me to pick anything up." Uh, would you take your feet off the seat? Well, I'm going to have to call in somebody because this is not a safe space for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, you have made me very unsafe. Oh, you mean by asking to take your feet off the seat so the lady doesn't get your shoes on her dress? Yes. So we're in another we're in another climate altogether. You're nodding your head. Well, we are. I mean, there's no question that as a culture, something has shifted. The the ground beneath our feet has shifted, and uh, the boundaries that we assumed are gone. And in fact, uh, it's not even coherent. You know, it's, uh, the center will not hold. Uh, and you, you, you can't have a denial of reality, and you can't have a completely egocentric worldview for everybody. That just simply doesn't work <laughs> that what you say is uh, attacking me. What you say makes me feel unsafe. Well, what if I feel unsafe because you feel unsafe? Uh, what does that do to me? And so you're, you're right. There, There is a real shift there. But I, I just believe if you look at the history of Christianity, it's into vacuum such as this that the gospel really shines, mm-hmm. uh, to mix a metaphor there. But it, it really does because, because that center can't hold, because there's just no – basic sense of reality, people hunger for something that is real. And this is where I think gospel preachers need to take courage and be bold and proclaim the truth in a world that doesn't even even accept the concept of truth, Uh, to say, yes, there is truth. It's revealed in the Word of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, and you need the gospel. Uh, And you know, I'm seeing lives changed, even in the midst of this. Uh, to see people that were completely broken by this sexual revolution come to faith in Christ and say, man, that did not work. Uh, it, it is exciting and thrilling. I, I got to tell one quick story. So when I, I served communion, I fenced the table very clearly who should and should not partake. And uh, a lady that came to our church with her sister, uh, who was a lesbian in a lesbian relationship, Said her, looked at her sister and said, is he saying I can't take the Lord's Supper? And her sister, God bless her, said, that's exactly what he's saying. So she was upset enough to get an appointment with me, to, came to see me. And uh, she said, if I understood you correctly, you said I couldn't take communion because I'm a lesbian. I said, no, ma'am, I didn't say that at all. And she said, well, what did you say? I said, you can't take communion because you're lost. I said, you've got a bigger problem than the fact that you're a lesbian. She said, well, what's that? I said, you're going to hell. And I, she said, well, what do I do about that? And I shared the gospel with her in my office. She trusted Christ, picked up the phone and called her partner of 24 years and said, I need to tell you, I've fallen in love with a man. <laughs> and that was over 10 years ago. She's a member of our church, 
God absolutely changed your life. And I'm like, there's no explaining that apart from the power of the gospel. Hmm. I mean, her, her life upended in an encounter with Christ. Man, that's, that's the boldness that we should have, that that can happen. Just, just tell it. You men know that there are men listening to this podcast, men who have been at this event who would say, the big church down the street that does the summer series that's based on movies, titles, they're, they're full. And I'm teaching justification by faith, and I've got 150 people coming. So I hear you saying that we need to be focused on theology and the gospel, but it doesn't seem to be, there does not seem to be a palette for that in my community. What do they do with that? Well, I, I always think in that regard about First uh, Corinthians in chapter 3, you know, uh, what you build with uh, will eventually be revealed. And there's a big difference between building with gold and silver and precious stones and wood, hay and stubble. And uh, there's a lot of wood, hay and stubble. And First Corinthians chapter 3 tells us uh, about uh, how long it will last and what happens to it in the end. That's a great tragedy, isn't it, to... To build something massive that in the end uh, doesn't really count for anything in eternal terms at all. And so when we have the privilege of holding forth the word of life, we're, we're, we're dealing with the gold and the silver and the precious stones, and that is of infinite, lasting, and eternal value. Persevere mm-hmm. in, in yeah. doing well, yeah. doing good is yeah. what I hear yeah. you yeah. say. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> this person's fictional, obviously, but, um, you know— but don't let's don't let's lay the charge on the doctrine of justification by faith, which is really good and transforms lives. You know, the person he may be envious of something that is vibrant and worthwhile, imaginative and creative, and he's either never been imaginative or creative in the way in which he's approached ministry. And so we wouldn't want to we wouldn't want to suggest somehow or another that you neither can have all the fun and excitement over here or you can deal with all this dreadful stuff over here. This is the stuff that does transform lives. Movies come and movies go, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So, But, you know, some guys think, you know, all you have to do is just stand up and talk about it. Right. But no, there's more to it than that, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And we need to encourage uh, fellows uh, to be... Uh, both prayerful, but also, I think, uh, creative in the way in which they seek to build bridges into their communities. Herschel, you've written on and teach on preaching. Mm -hmm. Alistair just talked about being imaginative and creative. I've heard people say, you don't need to worry about that. Just preach the word. Well, uh, that's, you know, it's not either or. It's it's both and. Uh, Jesus was creative. Paul was creative. Uh, You know, Paul on the Areopagus uh, had an entry point uh, by which he confronted uh, the, those uh, Areopagites. And I think we need to think deeply about the text, but we also need to think deeply about people and how we, uh, how we present the gospel. You know, uh, I, never, I never mind people being offended by the gospel, but I really am troubled if what they're responding to is my stinking delivery or personality. So I want to adorn the gospel. I want to present it in the best way possible. I want to be engaging. I think delivery does matter. I think we need to think about it. 
and how we present it uh, and uh, confront people with the claims of the gospel in a way that uh, that sort of grabs them by the lapels. I'm not talking about uh, sensationalism. or I'm just talking about, well, I'll put it like this. There's no way Jesus was dull and boring. Mm-hmm. People wanted to hear him. And he's not delivering this in monotone. He's using images. He's using hyperbole. Uh, he's engaging in every way. And, and I just think we, we need to give it that kind of attention and effort. How do we grow in that skill as as young men, as pastors, how do you develop that side of the preaching dynamic to be more creative, imaginative, more vibrant in your preaching? Well, I listen to good preachers. You know, there's one reason I, I, I love to listen to these these two men. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you listen to nothing makes you want to preach well, like listen to good preaching, except perhaps listen to bad preaching. <laughs> <laughs> that really makes you want to do it well, too. Uh, either way, you're spurred on to excellence, I think, because you see the cost of bad preaching. You know, if if the shutters are closing, they're not really even rejecting the gospel. They're not even hearing the gospel. Mm-hmm. If I'm dull and lifeless and boring and not really highlighting the text, uh, so I, I I want to I want to work on it. I want to listen to good preachers. And by the way, the video does not lie. There's nothing more painful than watching myself preach. There's also a few things more productive than watching that and going, oh, I can't believe I do that. What, did I just touch my nose five times in 60 seconds? Those kinds of things, you know, just to say, I don't want to do anything that distracts from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, that takes effort. That takes uh, – why would I spend years going to seminary and learning the truth of the text of Scripture – only to then not pay any attention to the way I deliver it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, again, not either or, it's both and. Is there a way, Colin, that you have grown in that area? Yeah, I think the thing that's been uh, most helpful to me is uh, the wonderful reality of God melding together preaching and pastoral ministry. So weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice, I think has a huge, plays a huge part in opening one's eyes uh, so that one sees the Scripture not only in relation to oneself, but in relation to the people that God's called you as a pastor to 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 walk with, and I, I think that's a that's a, a wonderful thing. Um, there's an opening of the life on two sides: mm-hmm. an opening of the life to the Word of God on the one side, and an opening of the life to the people of God on the other side. And and then preaching comes out of right. the experience of these two, and uh, and that that shapes and tenderizes the heart and. Uh, uh, the way in which things are expressed. So as you're doing your study or preparing your message, do you find yourself reflecting back on a counseling appointment you've had and thinking, yeah, I, oh, I, this brother's going to need to hear this point that I make in my sermon? I, I, I do that quite often, um, uh, but it's indirectly. Uh, you, you, you're not trying to preach to a particular right. individual, right. but because you've walked with people, you see things not only through your own eyes, but through their eyes, because you're aware of what they're they're dealing with. And uh, you know, the, the high priest used to go into uh, the presence of the Lord in the Old Testament, wearing the names of the people uh, on the ephod, these stones on the chest. He, he carried the names of the people on his heart. And uh, um, uh, that's something that uh, I was taught and have really benefited from. It's a, it's a great thing to be a pastor and a shepherd of the people of God. And Ursula, you've been talking about that in this conference, how shepherding and preaching belong together. And how we have to exegete the text, but also yeah, know your people. It, and it is a life that preaches. I mm-hmm. mean, ethos matters. 
you you do this this is the beauty of being a pastor i mean they know i've I've been with my folks 20 years i I can't fool them at all they know me they they know my struggles my weaknesses and i know theirs and it's a life that preaches and uh, you you know you can't lose credibility in the way you live your life and then stand up in the pulpit and preach the gospel and think that they're going to be listening and so it's a constant reminder of our need to be personally holy following christ closely nearly and uh, to preach out of the overflow of my relationship with christ in a way that engages people mm-hmm. and they want that as well. Alistair, I remember a pastor saying to me once, our job is to make the scriptures memorable for those who are hearing our preaching so that the point sticks, doesn't just evaporate. And and I think part of being creative and imaginative is trying to press the truth deeper into somebody's heart and soul. Yes. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, you know, that his task was to make the scriptures relevant <laughs> which, of course, is could never be. The scriptures are relevant. We just have to show how relevant they are, if, that, if that's what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, Perkins has, he's got those seven categories of listeners uh, that he talks about, that when you go into the pulpit, there are people out there who are some who basically don't give a hoot about their being there. And he talks through these various categories. And obviously, we don't have them all in our minds in our preparation, but we do realize that there are people there whose hearts have been stirred. They've turned away from Christ and they're hardened. There are other people who have uh, toyed with things. It's, It's all over the place. And again, that's the work of the Spirit of God, isn't it? To to incline the hearts of people and and to incline our hearts too. That, I mean, what we're talking about here is bridging all these horizons, the horizon between the text of Scripture and our own understanding of it, and the horizon between ourselves and the people who are sitting out there in, in the pew, and the horizon between them and the culture out of which they have just come and the framework that they have left. I mean, none of us have got the ability to, you know, tackle all of that, encapsulate all of that. But every so often it's good for me to imagine that the things that I'm about to say are being heard by the people who live right next door to me. So, for example, you're doing the second chapter of Romans 1. You think, now, my next-door neighbor is going to hear this, and his son is homosexual. Mm-hmm. That's helpful to me. It doesn't make me water down Romans 1, but it changes the way I hold the ball. Mm-hmm. It changes the way I make the pass. And I, I, I think, as the others are saying, that's so vitally important. Yeah, I, I'm back to one of my either-or that that you're going to say, well, it's not either-or, but it's both. But in our day, do we need to be bold or gentle in how we present the scriptures? And I know it's, I know the answer is both. It's gently bold, <laughs> so, uh, or boldly gentle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you really do have to think about the way it lands again. I can live with the offense of the cross, mm-hmm. but I can't live with the offense of Herschel York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want to say what the Scripture says. But, you know, to get up and like to mock homosexuals or to make light of people who have gender dysphoria, well, that's not helpful. Uh, to, to see it as, man, first of all, these people are victims of our enemy, mm-hmm. the thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Our hearts should be broken over people with 
uh, same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. They need the gospel, you know, and we, we've got to make sure that we're giving them the hope. It's not – they're not any more condemned. There's not a hell number one for straight people and hell number two for homosexual people. They all need the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so we need to make sure that we're making that clear. We're not picking on any one group. All are concluded in unbelief. All are lost and in need of the gospel. I'm thinking about the message on spiritual pride that you just gave and thinking what he's saying. There's a root of spiritual pride in the one who would mock or not be gentle, who doesn't recognize there but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I'm really uh, resonating, Alistair, with what you just said about the the way that uh, you hold the ball. That, that That's really helpful. I, I, I found that when there's opportunity to speak person to person to someone who has a particular struggle, um, it then affects the tone in which you will speak clearly from the scriptures. You'll say the same thing uh, in public as you say in private. But if you said it in private first, it does affect the tone in which you speak and the way in which you speak, because you've engaged with a real person Mm -hmm. who may be struggling with trying to find a way forward, and you've had an opportunity to engage them with the scriptures. So, um, uh, yeah, bringing these two things together is of the essence of pastoral ministry. But look at the way that the Lord Jesus dealt with the woman of Samaria and uh, engages her and draws her in and uh, doesn't start with the uh, moral condition of her life. But there's some desire in this woman's heart to know God and to discover what worship is. And the Lord Jesus draws her in and um, it's beautiful. it's, It's truth and it's truth that is presented in a way that is genuinely winsome. I remember a pastor saying before Jesus overturned the money changers' tables, he wept over Jerusalem. Yes. And he said, before you go in and start overturning tables, have you wept over the condition of the people you're speaking to? That's been helpful for me just to think about how to be boldly gentle or gently bold in how I handle this. I think it's also important to remember Jesus walked in and out of the temple a lot of times without flipping those tables. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, people today want to use that, well, Jesus turned over the tables. Jesus showed anger. Yeah, he did. On two occasions, he did that. How many times do you think he went in and out of the temple without doing that? There was a time. And by the way, he took the time. He went out and made his own whip. It wasn't, it wasn't the anger of a moment. It was a planned, purposeful rage against those who would rob his father of his glory. And it, it, it wasn't a personal affront. He wasn't angry at people for what they did to him. And we need to remind ourselves that there is a righteous anger, uh, and but it's controlled, mm-hmm. it's purposeful, and it's never at the expense of those who are trapped in sin by, by Satan. All three of you have lived outside the United States, ministered outside the United States. You're aware of what God is doing in other parts of the world, not just in the Western world or in the the UK and and the United States. Um, What's your sense of Central and South America, uh, Africa, Asia? Is the gospel – I've heard somebody say there will be more believers in China a generation from now than we have in the United States. Are, should we be encouraged by what God is doing in other parts of the world? Well, I'm happy to jump in and say absolutely. Uh, two of my most significant spiritual experiences personally have been in two communist countries. Uh, 
where I just saw God do amazing things, uh, believers uh, that are, you know, people that are coming to faith in Christ, churches being planted, all without uh, government approval. And so, you know, the, the, the gospel is going to have its effect. And this is the thing that encourages me about our own culture. It's easy for us to say, wow, it's worse than it's ever been, because the United States is such an anomaly in world history that from its inception, the gospel was favored given a favored status and that's passing away and now we're really experiencing what most of the world experiences but look at what god is doing in those countries you know man south korea is absolutely amazing what god has done there since world war ii uh, and you're just seeing the proliferation of the gospel and they're sending I, I think within the next 10 years south korea will be sending more missionaries than the united states does wow. it's it is a a stunning movement of god so I take great heart in that. You've just been with a group of international pastors today. What's your sense of what God is doing in other parts of the world? Well, I just find it very humbling. I mean, from all around the place, uh, a boy born born in the USSR, now in Kazakhstan, um, Albania, Brazil, Egypt. I mean, we just went all around. And all of them uh, telling the story of uh, God at work in a, in a variety of ways, not necessarily things that are immediately apparent because of media coverage. But, um, yeah, sure, God is at work. And, and one of the other aspects of it that I was thinking about is just the fact of people movements, that when you take seriously what the Bible says about he has, that God has ordered history, that God orders geography, that God orders it all, then it it actually needs to play into my own personal political responses to the idea of immigration, that God is sovereign over the movement of peoples. So, for example, in London at the moment, there's a significant gathering of people from North Korea who are getting out through China and and ending up, many of them, in London. And they are very open to the gospel, and there's a gathering of them there that are preaching. Our brother Afshin uh, from Iran and the Farsi congregation at the Tron Church in Glasgow Hmm. is a large congregation, and the proclamation is being done there. But many of the people politically are concerned that those dreadful people are now in our country that we want to keep all for ourselves. Sure, we understand that mentality, whatever, but God's perspective, you know, he moved them in there so that they could hear about Jesus. And... uh, We'll be tied the Christian church if we don't recognize that these folks that have come here need Jesus too, and that we've got a Jesus to tell them about. We have maybe in the United States looked at the UK and the decline, the post-Christian nature of the UK and thought, well, that could never happen here. And yet we look around today and go, it it seems the shadows of the UK have spread across what's happening in the United States. Are you hopeful for what's happening here? Are we going to be like like Europe? It, it, it strikes me that there are two sides to that story. So, I mean, it's certainly true that the decline in the influence of Christianity in general has been very, very marked uh, in the UK. The uh, numbers attending church are very, very low indeed. 
But what has happened over a long period of time, I think, is that people of nominal faith have been kind of washed out um, uh, from uh, from the life of the church. Mm. Now, at some point, you get down to such a low level that actually what you have is small churches um, that are substantially made of real believers. And I actually think, I, I think we spoke briefly about this the, the other day, uh, Alistair, that in some ways there are more encouragements now in the UK um, than certainly 20 years ago because you've got believers who say, well, we're going to pray. We're going to try and plant a church. We're going to take initiative. In some ways, there are less divisions than there were in, in earlier decades. And there's a sense of, well, we may be small, but we're the Lord's and we're, uh, we, we're going to exercise faith here. And there are many, many examples of enterprises that are greatly encouraging. Now, I, I wonder whether... If it is the case that there will be a diminishing of the number of people who would claim the name Christian in this country, could it be that with that there might actually be some raising of the spiritual temperature mm. that might indeed uh, be the beginning of some renewed work of God in our country for his praise and his glory? What's your sense? No, I think that's really good. I, I don't think there's any doubt that there's no, there's no sort of... Um, cachet about being a Christian in Britain. Hmm. You know, we get in a taxi or right on the tube. It's uh, the idea that pluralism would be would be great because then we could put our little stand beside all the other little stands and we could argue our case. Except now our stand has been cancelled because we're prepared to make claims that, that uh, although the the reach of the gospel is for the all for the whole world and for everybody. The entry point is through one person and one person alone, namely Jesus, and of course that is obviously opposed. The good news, is, as Colin is saying, though, is that, and I think I've seen this in COVID too, in part, that many of the external concentric circles of church attendance uh, washed away and haven't come back. There may be good in that, that they've gone to better places or involved in different ways. But I think it's partly the same thing, that uh, when the temporary is turned up, the chocolate soldiers melt. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are that are there and are trusting and are believing and are keen um, are able to, to make an impact. I don't want to be the prophet of doom. I, we started off here, you know, that I said you quoted me. But it, I, I agree. I, I'm not pessimistic about these things for the very reasons that are being stated. How can we be in relationship to the greatest story that the world could ever know? And also, if you think about England, if you imagine England before the Wesleys, if you want to think about darkness and emptiness and manifold chaos, um, and then what happens? Mrs. Wesley has a couple of boys. <laughs> Mrs. Wheatfield has a baby, you know. And uh, who knows who's, who's uh, giving birth to, to the people that are going to be holding the standard for righteousness in generations still to come. That's what we're doing as pastors. That's why I'm in, you know, Psalm 71, 17 and 18. Now, ever since I turned 50, 70, you know, oh, Lord, thank you. You've watched over me for all this time. Now keep me to gray hairs and old age until I see the truth of the gospel firmly established in the generations that are yet to come. And that's what we're seeking to do. And it's, uh, it is wonderfully encouraging to just see lives and families touched and changed by the truth of God's Word. As we enter into a divisive season 
in the United States, the next 18 months, political season, an election coming up. What advice do you have for your fellow pastors about how they handle that uh, in their pastoring over the next 18 months? Preach something that will still sound like preaching the gospel 30 years from now. Yeah. Don't don't say something that you think has cachet in the moment, uh, but 30 years from now will sound ridiculous. You know, I think we get too caught up in a person of the moment, uh, some issue of the moment, and, you know, it, it, it's not the timeless gospel of Jesus Christ. Focus on the gospel. Yeah. Preach it boldly. Not, you know, again, let the offense be the offense of the gospel, not of some political movement or personage. And uh, that if you listen to it 30 years from now, you'd still stand by every word of it, and it would still make perfect sense. Yeah. We want to win people from every background to living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, it sounds dreadful because it sounds like a plug, but we've just done a book called The Christian Manifesto based on the Sermon on the Plain. And the message is, well, our, our, our story is not a Republican story. It's not a Democratic story. It's actually not a political story, ultimately. It's a story about a king who came in order that lives might be touched and changed and transformed by him. And I agree with what my brothers are saying. Yeah, we've, our story is a gospel story, and that's our story. We all have political interests and, you know, inclinations, but um, I think they have to be sublimated deliberately in our pulpits for the good of the gospel and for the well-being of our people. It can be a wearying season for pastors, even those who are intent on staying gospel-focused because they're getting pulled in all different directions. People are leaving their church because they don't like what's being said or not being said. Uh, There are brothers here who are discouraged. Have you gone through seasons of personal discouragement in ministry? Have, Have there been times when you thought, I need a I need to work at Lowe's as a greeter or stuck in a hardware shelf doing something. And and how have you dealt with that or how do you counsel a young man who's feeling that? What time is it? Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. still trying to get a job at Lowe's. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You go through discouragement. He just it, wants a discount, yeah, by the yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now he's get seventy gets that senior citizen discount. Uh he you know we have to make sure that the discouragement of the moment does not overwhelm the incredible destiny that's ours in Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. You know, we know how this story ends, and the Lord Jesus wins. He's going to return in glory. We're going to share in that glory. And we 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 can't be so caught up in the the very negative news of the moment that we lose sight of what we are promised in the Word. Yeah, I think everyone goes through times of uh, discouragement. I mean, Psalm 73, Asaph himself, my foot had almost slipped, and uh, uh, but he came into the sanctuary of God and he was renewed in his own sense of calling. It, it, it is so Im- important to, I find, remind myself it is a great privilege to be a pastor. And I, I find myself doing that quite often, and especially at times of discouragement, to say, you're privileged to have the Word of God, you're privileged to serve the people of God. And yes, there are frustrations, and yes, there are times where you think there's an easier way to live. 
But this is an immense privilege and uh, it is given for time and time is to be spent in the light of eternity. When your soul is downcast, Mm. you preach to your soul. Yeah, that's exactly right. Alistair? Well, it's Lloyd-Jones, isn't it? In spiritual depression, it's causes and cure. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Mm -hmm. Talk truth to yourself. Get a good Methodist hymn book and sing some of the old hymns. Um, Rejoice the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. And uh, hopefully, you know, the sense of our hearts uh, catches up with our wills in that regard. And um, I think it was one of the Chadwick guys who said, you know, he read Isaiah 40 every Monday morning uh, to reorientate his heart and mind coming out of the challenges and sometimes the discouragements of a Sunday, you know. And uh, I think that's, that's very important, isn't it? I hope you've been encouraged by the conversation that you've been listening to with Alistair Begg, Herschel York, and Colin Smith. If you'd like additional information about the Basics Conference, if you'd like to watch the messages from the 2023 conference or from any of the past conferences, or find out how you can attend in upcoming years, visit basicsconference.org.